Hello, WellPod listeners. This is Anson with a quick message before we start this week's episode. This episode contains some strong language and adult themes, so it's probably best you don't listen to this one with children in the room, or if you'd like a beeped version, you can go to our website, thewellpod.com, and hit the show notes tab. You'll find it there. Okay, enjoy the show. endings in movies uh, in, in a way that I had to I had to believe there was going to be a happy ending for me I had to I had to believe it was going to be like a movie I I believe those things so much that they actually began happening to me Welcome to the Well. I'm Anson Mount, and I am Brandon Edgens. And Brandon, you know, I have this. I've actually always had this theory mm-hmm. that everyone has that one particular friend that just weird stuff seems to happen to them all the time. They attract weird people, weird situations. There's something about their energy that mm-hmm. there's constantly strange things happening, and they always have this story about this happened or that. And you're like, "There's no way," and then it turns out it's true. Mm-hmm. Do you have a friend mm-hmm. like that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Who? Um. Right now, sort of, I'm bouncing around. I wasn't, I wasn't ready for the question. Uh, I have, I have. There's a kind of a couple, but I would say right now, I would say Chuck. Yeah, Chuck Moss, which always because he always starts off with, "I was minding my own business. I was minding my own business," <laughs> and then I'm in Mexican jail. I'm like, oh, again, <laughs> like, like he's been there a few times by now, and like you can't just be minding your own business. But like, it, it seems he, he finds himself there a lot. Well, for me, that friend is Ileana Douglas. She's a very prolific actress. She's appeared in a ton of movies like, uh, what, Cape Fear, To Die For, uh, Quiz Show, uh, Goodfellas, uh, Jungle Fever. The, the list goes on. Gosh, I'm, looking, I'm going through the list now. It's crazy. I know, right? Yeah. What? 172 credits? Yeah. How yeah. does anyone do that? I, I know. Well, I always was, and we've known each other for a long time. I was always the one on the set, like, you know, people saying, oh, my God, these crazy things happen to you. You know, tell them that story about... It's strange. Crazy stuff does happen to you a lot. Yeah. Somebody nicknamed me Ileana Rama, that sort of stuff, because it was always like, (laughs) and then the car went up the hill, and Jeff Goldblum was helping hold it up. You know, and it always (laughs) would weirdly, of course, because my life involves some celebrity. I, I seem to be surrounded. I, I kept going to like celebrity dog funerals. It was just like an odd, like, like I'm yet I'm at another celebrity dog funeral. And I can personally attest to this, Brandon, because the first day I ever met Ileana, we both somehow got talked into modeling swimwear for Cynthia Rowley on a runway walk that we that had been constructed in the backyard of some Hamptons billionaire that, that <laughs> neither of us had ever met or new, and somehow the entire party then ended up in the swimming pool. <laughs> it, it, it's, it was just one of the most bizarre evenings of my life. 
and anyway, I, I quickly realized that this kind of stuff happens to Ileana all the time. <laughs> and because it usually involves celebrities, for a long time I just assumed it was because those were the circles that Ileana occupied, being a celebrity herself. But then, okay, so she, she wrote her memoir entitled I Blame Dennis Hopper, which I was very excited about because I knew that she'd have a ton of great material. But then when I read it, I was like, oh, okay. Because Ileana, she kind of has this theory about why all this weird Hollywood stuff keeps happening to her. And it has to do with one fateful moment in her early childhood. Growing up, uh, my parents saw the movie Easy Rider uh, with, with Dennis Hopper. And it plunged us into like a life of, of poverty. Like we were an upper middle class family living in Connecticut until they saw that movie. <laughs> I know, I know that's, how that sounds. No, no, it's just it's like it's, it's just like it's 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 such, it's such a left turn from where you can, yeah. you can possibly go. You know, it's like I know a movie, right? Like one seventy-five minute low budget indie made with two motorcycles and a and a camera and a lot of weed <laughs> was the thing that would come to destroy Ileana's family. Easy Rider was shot on the other side of the country. Uh, it it nobody in her family knew anyone involved. It was fiction for crying out loud. But somehow this unlikely little hippie adventure film came down like a hammer and it completely altered Ileana's childhood. To be honest, it altered her entire life. But I'm getting ahead of the story. The reason I called the book I Blame Dennis Hopper is that if my parents hadn't seen that movie and you know they were transformed by character in a movie that Dennis Hopper was embodying. My family, uh, my, my parents met in the late 50s and, you know, Kate were living in New York and I think it was very much like a part of the American dream to move to Connecticut and have children. The urban centers and their industries are only minutes away from highly desirable suburban communities such as West Hartford and Manchester which provide ample variety in residential choice for workers and executives alike. And then the 60s was kind of a rebellion against all of that, against being a typical housewife and being bourgeois and buying a washer-dryer and the, the idea that all those things that meant so much in the 50s, suddenly in the 60s became you didn't want to be identified as that kind of person. So I think that for my parents, it, that's what it was. And getting caught up with the counterculture and then obviously the Vietnam War and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, my father ended up leaving his job and starting a commune called The Studio and started a band and he was he ceased being my father or anybody's father or the american ideal of what a father was he became dennis hopper in easy rider like that's in my mind you know when i was five what was it about that movie i think that it what it represented for me and this i pieced this together myself some of it is the times you know obviously the movie had such an influence on, on people But the only issue that I see, and I'm just an observer, is that, you know, there were three small children to be considered. Yeah. Yeah. And so the idea that, you know, my dad had his own commune with, like, women running around and, you know, people doing drugs and, 
you know, I don't know, was that the, I, I love it because it gave me a great idea for a book because the, my observation was that they were in a movie. They were in this, we were in this kind of 60s movie, you know, with mm. all these men that looked and sounded like Dennis Hopper. And I didn't want to be in that movie. I wanted to be, I, as soon as I discovered my grandfather was Melvin Douglas. Quick, important note here for those who don't know who Melvin Douglas was. He was an actor. Barry. Yes, Jim. They're back. Fine, have a good trip. Who? The Evans. The Evans are still in Bermuda. The hiccups are back. Huh? Oh. <laughs> the joke's on me, huh? <laughs> uh, he, he actually won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in one of my favorite films, HUD, with Paul Newman. So, Ileana's father, a businessman who upended his own life because of a movie... Turns out he was the son of a movie star. Is this starting to make a little sense? Yes. <laughs> I want that's the movie I wanted to be in. I wanted to be in the black and white movie where people had enough food to eat and were drinking champagne and you know dancing on shiny marble floors and I don't know why that. And but, everybody just has money. Yeah, that's that's what I you know wanted and. Yeah. I understood, I was old enough to understand we had money and that we didn't have money. Like, so we went from, and, and I lived in a suburb in Connecticut where everybody was very wealthy, but, but we suddenly were not wealthy. So I was taught that, you know, Barbie dolls are bad and television is bad and commercialism is bad. And so I was caught as a child between like loving all that stuff and thinking it was great and you know and and knowing the edict of my family was that you know you've got to be hippies and you know there was severe sort of bullying for the you know persecuted I was absolutely persecuted for the lifestyle of my parents you know so it's interesting when people talk about bullying today because they're being bullied but I was bullied you know, I felt helpless. Like, it wasn't my fault that they chose to be hippies and, you know, have goats running around. And, you know, my father used to drive around town with uh, with goats from the commune because he, he, he would rotate the goats because he thought that the, the he, he sensed that the cosmically the goats didn't want to be penned in. So he took the back seat. You know, and he always had some bombed out car that would, you know, we'd buy for $100 and it would run for six months. And he, t he took the back seat out of every car and then he ro he'd rotate and have the goats in the car and drive them around town. And, you know, I just feel people would be like, isn't your father the one who rides around with the goats? And I'm like, no, no, I don't I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so I just learned to have this, you know, this kind of great. Uh, facade and there were constantly people at her house strangers you know this element of danger was always around you know grown-ups drugs things like that being left at people's houses uh, you know it's like you know just like what's happening but then as the decade goes on and as we get into the 70s the excesses of this lifestyle uh, for me as an observer, became pretty scary and pretty crazy. In the end, all that scariness and craziness culminated in her father 
hopping into a blue Volkswagen with his new girlfriend and her two kids and driving away. Mm. Um, and so movies became, for me, a very safe, you know, a safe environment and started projecting myself in films, like imagining that, you know, Richard Dreyfuss was my friend, Liza Minnelli was my friend. Like, they they, they knew me. They, they uh, you know, I had a self-awareness that I was watching movies that I was not, I, I no longer fit in in my own world because of the environment that my parents had created. And so what I gravitated towards was the character in the movie that also seemed to be self-aware. And for me, that first person was Richard Dreyfuss, was like American graffiti, because I was a kid who, I was like the class clown, and I tried to make everyone funny, but I, I didn't feel comfortable in any world except a world of, of movies, where people, where it seemed like I would see people like myself. And I really believe, and this sounds a little cornball, but I think it's true. I started to just really, really believe in happy endings in movies uh, in, in a way that I had to, I had to believe there was going to be a happy ending for me. I had to. I had to believe it was going to be like a movie. You know, when I saw The Goodbye Girl, I, I really believed in that movie. Like, I, I was going to be Elliot Garfield. Like, I was going to go to New York and be an actor and wear a scarf and you know it represented as cornball as it sounds like i'm gonna live on the upper west side and guess what i did so when iliana is 18 she gets accepted into a renowned acting school located in new york city and at first it seems like the movie of her life is happening but just like any good plot, the second act doesn't just have its high points. The second act is there to test our hero's resolve. So it led me eventually, you know, into a, a world of acting. I was going to acting school, this first acting school I went to, which was the American Academy, and they hated me there. I was like hanging by a thread. They said things to me like, here's an example. Teacher said to me that my voice was so horrible that the only thing I would be able to do is sell refrigerators. First of all, I don't even know what that means, but that's how horrible my voice is. So I was like, what does that even mean? Like, sell refrigerators. And what was crazy was that every time I would go on stage and do something, the class and the audience, like I would just put one foot on the stage and everybody would start laughing. And I would get this great response. And then the teacher would always say, you know, you're not, that's your problem, Ileana. You're playing for the audience. I'd be like, who else should I be playing for? You know, in the audience, everyone laugh and everything. <laughs> but I was constantly getting in trouble. And I was constantly being told that I was horrible. There was another teacher who said to me, some people are sexy. You try to be sexy. <laughs> That was another. <laughs> that was another classic American Academy. Tell me, tell us the story that you told Lee, me out, outside about Lee Marvin. Well, this is crazy, you know, because again, I was, 
I really felt true romantic feelings for Lee Marvin. I know. I don't know why. It was a musical. I don't know why. I was in love with him. I just fell madly in love with Lee Marvin in Paint Your Wagon. I can't explain it. And I was on my way to school. I'd had a very tough year. And I was on my way to school. And they actually called them the final scenes. You did. You did. You did your final scene. And based on your final scene, you know, for all the judges, the people, the teachers, you get asked back or not. So I'm on my way to school and I was like, oh my God, I felt ill and horrible. Like, why am I here? What am I doing? Please God, give me some sign. Because I'd always ask the universe for, you know, you got to give me some sign that this is meant to be. And I'm walking there and I look up and walking the opposite way on Fifth Avenue and there is standing the Silver Fox. Lee Marvin walking down Fifth Avenue nobody notices him just casually dressed and I literally did something that I've never done before after 18 years old I'm 80s imagine me with the big hair I probably had the big hair with the clip up in the thing jumped in his bed I was like oh my god you're Lee Marvin and I love how when you do things like this you think that they're going to be you think that they're, they're like, going to be thrilled oh my god I am yeah <laughs> You're Lee Marvin. This is incredible. I was like, you're in the first movie I ever saw. Paint your wagon. My grandmother took me to see Paint Your Wagon, Radio City. You know, and I, it just starts coming out. And he looked like he was sort of hungover. He sort of stooped down. You know, very Lee Marvin, just looking at me. And I, I go to list every film, and I said Dirty Dozen. And I love the Dirty Dozen. And then I was like, oh, he's really gonna be impressed because I'm gonna bring up Pocket Money. And I go, and I saw Pocket Money. I go Pocket Money. And I know that Offset, Pocket Money. It's a movie you didn't really like. Working with Paul Newman, and The Big Red One. And I've seen it multiple times. And I said, yeah, Mark Hamill is in Star Wars, but I don't care about Star Wars. I care about The Big Red One. And, and I go, Gorky Park, I just saw Gorky Park. He goes, if he, if he, he's my dog, you know, I'll, 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 I'll gut him. And I was quoting him from Gorky, his line from Gorky Park. And I said, anyway, anyway, I just had to say it because I was looking for a sign and I'm on my way to my, I'm an actress. Can you, I'm an actress doing my final scene. And this is a sign. And he literally like put his hand up like, I can't take it anymore. And then he said, uh, young lady, if you have half as much energy on stage as you do in life, you, you ought to do just fine. And then uh, I just started like, I mean, I started tearing up, you know, and they leaned down, kind of like kissed me on the cheek and did a little like tip of the thing, you know. And I literally just stayed there. Like I couldn't move, I couldn't walk. I watched him walk up Fifth Avenue kind of disappear in the crowd nobody saw him nobody no nobody noticed him i literally was like you know they talk about dancing on here i was i was like three feet off the ground ran to school i just met lee marvin you know who what who cares you know so how'd your final scenes go well this is what's so funny i read about this in the book i was like can i was on fire because lee marvin you know i was on fire and i killed like, the audience was insane. And the audience was like, literally crazy, stomping their feet, ba 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 everything was great. 
And it's like the, afterwards there's a big party and the president of the school comes up to me and she, and I'm thinking, finally, finally, we have had this year where it was like, she put rake me over the coals, she's finally gonna tell me how great I was. And she takes me by the hand and she goes, goodbye, Eliana. And then she just walked away and I was like, wow, that just, that just nuts, that sounds ominous, you know? And sure enough, three weeks later, I get this letter, you have not been asked back, you know? And I was devastated, you know? I was absolutely devastated, but I was also really angry because, and this is what I talk about the lesson with Lee Marvin. I mean, I could, I could get welled up thinking about it. Lee Marvin saw something, as corny as that may be, and maybe I'm delusional in making it up, but in my mind, Lee Marvin saw something in me, no matter how bombastic or stupid it was. Mm -hmm. And look at where I am today. I did make it. He saw something in me. And I was like, you know what? Fuck the American Academy. Fuck them. They're a bunch <laughs> of idiots. And I was 18 years old. And I was like, you know what? You know what I'm going to do these fucking bastards? I called up the neighborhood playhouse. And I, I was like, oh, oh, it's against the law to go to another acting school. I called up the neighborhood playhouse. I auditioned for the neighborhood playhouse. And I, I went to school at the neighborhood playhouse. And everything that they hated about me at the American Academy, once I got into the playhouse, it was, you know, I was unique. I was my own unique, unorthodox, larger-than-life personality. And I feel like they were they were trying to stifle that at the Academy. They were trying to make me into something that they thought actors, you know, should be. And so I feel like Lee Marvin literally saved my life. Second acts are tough. You and I both know that as mm -hmm. writers. Mm -hmm. They're a delicate interweaving of challenges, failures, temptations, lessons, each one incrementally adding up to some kind of transformation in our hero. We don't need to linger on each step of Ileana's second act because, well, you can go see her movies. <laughs> but there is an end point to the second act. It's when our hero finally realizes the true goal of their quest. Now, quite often, it looks nothing like the hero thought it would, but other times, it's so poetically realized that it makes the hero and us in the audience really wonder if there is a strange and mysterious design at work. And then ultimately, I ended up working with the real Dennis Hopper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably saw that coming, didn't you? It had, he, had, yeah. he, he, had to, he had to figure <laughs> into the story more than just as inspiration for her dad, yes. So in 1995, Ileana's attached herself to this little independent film she was helping to develop and, and was going to be in. And at this point, she's already got over 10 feature films under her belt. She's made it. She's an adult, supporting herself with her craft. She's a highly respected professional within the entertainment industry. And then, the guy who's arguably responsible for destroying Ileana's childhood, her family, and setting her on the very course she is now on, is cast to play alongside her in a film that is titled, and I am not making this up, 
Search and destroy. <laughs> I'm more than any other person, you know, he influenced my life. And then like, how do you, how often do you get to meet the person who changed your destiny? Because I think that had I grown up in suburbs of Connecticut and gone to Smith College and I, I would have been a, gone in a, com- a completely, probably a different way. I don't know what that would have been. Maybe I would have been a writer or something like that. But So did you ever get to tell Dennis about your childhood? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Really? We jo- Before I was going to do the book, I wanted to actually do a documentary about it. And he knew about this. Mm. And I said, I bet there's like a whole bunch of people whose lives you've ruined. And we should go. <laughs> we. I mean, I, I nursed a fantasy that like he and my father would meet. You know, I don't know. That was my own sort of thing but I said we should go across the country and we should like take on motorcycles on motorcycles (laughs) yeah and I said let's talk to all the people because I said I feel like that movie more than any other movie changed America it changed films the way films were distributed it it marks kind of you're talking about the end of the studio system uh, it's it just like a rebel, you know, he embodied James Dean, but put it in a new spin. It's like hippie spin. And uh, I just think it was a pivotal movie, you know. Two guys, that's the, the tagline is, you know, they went searching for an America that was no longer there. That was, I think that was the dilemma of people like my parents. They were, you know, they were taught to be, uh, you know, have kids, move to the suburbs, be on the PTA. And some people rebelled from that. My parents were part of those people. Like, they rebelled. They didn't They didn't adhere to that, you know. And then that created a whole new generation of people that were, that were rebellious. And I'm one of those, you know, I became one of those people. And right. through working with Dennis Hopper, I forgave my parents. Yeah. Because he was such a iconic in real life I was like tell me another story you know like it was unbelievable he had he just was a mystic and he had and I thought well he sort of hypnotized my parents through through seeing that movie you know I was like god bless Dennis Hopper you know like if I hadn't been for Dennis Hopper I it put my whole set my whole mindset so I thought it would have been a really cool uplifting movie unfortunately his cancer happened so dramatically and so quickly that I didn't even get to get to talk to him. Um, what a loss. Yeah, he was great. And he was also interesting, too, I wrote about in the book, because he was an actor that started out in doing studio films and then broke out of it and did Easy Rider and did these indie movies and, you know, lost it, and then comes back at the end of his career and finishes out by doing studio movies and becomes like... A completely different, yeah. you know, almost like poking fun at his his own image in a way. It's like his, you know, his latter his latter movies. I have also worked with Peter Fonda, which is bizarre. In the movie Grace of My Heart, he came in and he played a character named Guru Dave, and so we we got to smoke a joint together. So that was also weirdly surreal. Of like my hippie childhood. Did either of them ever apologize for ruining your childhood? <laughs> yeah, Dennis did. He, he used to really? go, "Sorry, <laughs> sorry." I was like, "Yeah." Sounds real sincere, Dennis. <laughs> yeah, you sure are sheepish. And that's it. Oh. I don't know. Do you have any theories about you know why 
Weird things happen to certain people? I don't know, but in this particular instance, you know, it's easy to dismiss it uh, from the outside by saying, oh, well, that, you know, you're in that world, there's famous people around, but but no, it, 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 it's even weirder, I think, uh, the, the way that film has tied into pivotal moments of Ileana's life, mm-hmm. and it's so well explored in her book. It's a great read. I was laughing, I was tearing up, it's got it's got both of those comedy and pathos um and i think she's a really good writer i i reckon i highly recommend the the book to anybody interested in her or film or soul searching in general hmm. i i i think lee marvin was was right i mean it that 18 year old energy is still there yeah oh yeah and i think she strikes me as one of those people that's just like I feel a thing. I do a thing. You know, like, yeah, fast. Yeah. Because you are, she is, alive to the moment. Whatever's happening, she's going to, ba- it's going to hit her. It makes her a great actress. It does. And, and she's going to, and she's going to react. She's going to bounce off of it. It's going to bounce off her. It's going to, she doesn't do the, the, <laughs> she's clearly not a person who's like, oh, I need to go hide and think about this for a second. Not to say that, not to say that she's not introspective. That's not at all what mm-hmm. I'm saying. But she's alive to the moment. Oh yeah, you know. And most people are, you know, it's are, are kind of a, that that involves a certain. T- I think a lot of people would feel that as a loss of control, which is why they don't do it. And for people like her, I don't think that's her experience at all. I think that's no, just she, she the is, way she goes through. She's life. a rock. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. The additional tracks you heard in this episode are Guava Juice by Aaron Lieberman, Arabian Sands by Ease Jammy Jams, and Ticket to Nowhere Man by Audionautics, provided under a Creative Commons attribution license. Special thanks to Ileana Douglas for taking the time to chat with an old friend. You can find her book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, on Amazon and Audible and in all major bookstores. Have a great week, everyone.